Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Rachel Tipgraph, the founder and CEO of Micmac. I'm Sarah Hofstetter, president of Profitero. Welcome, Welcome to, to our, our podcast, podcast, Brave, Brave Commerce. Commerce. Sarah, I can't stop thinking about Target's Q3 quarterly earnings that just happened a few weeks ago. You know, in it, they shared that their grocery line, their private label grocery line, Good and Gather has done a billion dollars in revenue in a year. You know, the last few years, the narrative in the industry has been that the darling direct-to-consumer brands are the greatest threat to these behemoth CPG companies. But it's not the darling direct-to-consumer brands that have achieved a billion dollars in direct revenue. It's private label. Private label is the biggest threat to these legacy CPG companies. And you know what? They've got a leg up in a lot of ways. They understand their consumer deeply. And when consumers, especially during the pandemic, couldn't find the brands that they were looking for and would take pretty much anything so long as they can get their toilet paper, choices of brands really kind of went out the door and consumers started cheating, which means they started sampling private label and others. Yeah. We continue to see so much of that. The other thing that uh, we're seeing with one of our clients, it's Walgreens Boots Alliance, and they have a huge private label business. They don't just sell their private label products at Walgreens and Boots. They also are selling them at Ulta, at Target, and many other retailers. And for me, this is a huge signal that private label is going to be the next great threat. You know, what's interesting is how Che, the CEO of Box, sees his private label business so completely differently. He said they use private label to fill in the gaps of their merchandising mix to meet consumer needs and that his business is growing for them nonetheless. Well, I can't wait to bring Che onto the show. If every retailer CEO was like Box and Che, I think this landscape would be so friendly and altruistic. Che, we are so excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for joining. Thanks for having me. It'll be an exciting conversation for sure. You know, I've, I've known uh, Rachel for years now. So this will just be like another coffee session that we have in Soho sometimes. Exactly. Well, what's so wild is you started Box six years ago. E-commerce landscape, completely different. What was the market opportunity that you saw then? It dates me a little bit, but I'm, I'm, I don't know if I cringe or I'm proud to say it's actually seven and a half years ago oh, wow. that we started Boxed. And you can only imagine in late 2013, like where, where e-commerce with regards to CPG was, you know. So basically at that time, you had even Silicon Valley kind of investors 
not really paying much attention to it, saying, hey, yeah, one, I don't really shop on my mobile device yet. I, I browse, but I check out on my desktop. Um, which seems crazy now. I'm probably no one will admit to saying that. But back in 2013, that's how people that's how people uh, uh, kind of thought about the world. And then more importantly, they would say, and there was this thing called Webvan that didn't really work out too well, so we're not going to invest in this one. Hmm. And then on the brand side, you had folks you know who probably haven't onboarded a new customer in a decade, saying like, "What? Who are you? You're in your garage? What? What? You know?" And online, no, that's. The online team is usually where we put people out to pasture right before they retire. And that was, you know, people listening to this, even if you don't agree with it, but secretly, come on, you agree with it because that's really what was going on in 2013. So the landscape from then until now where you have the eight teams on e-commerce, you have investors pouring billions of dollars into this industry, not even like every year, but probably like every like half, that's probably the amount getting invested into this kind of sector. Seems like a different world. So because none of that was going on, you were like, I'm going to be the guy that needs to do this? Yeah. I don't know if it was, uh, uh, I was naive or just dumb. But certainly people always say like in, in venture that if, you're, if people think you're crazy, then you're onto something. Yeah, it doesn't feel that good when people generally think you're crazy and dumb. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but certainly it wasn't a deterrent though, because in our previous startup, we were in social gaming, which was pretty hot already at the time that we got into it. And kind of not being big or not being early to the party really uh, was problematic. And so we wanted to change that with our next company, Mm. uh, AK Box. I got to tell you, people told me I was crazy. I guess it was 15 years ago when I started getting into social media, just helping reconcile brand needs with where consumers were going and behaving. And friends, colleagues would say, social media? Are you freaking crazy? Like bloggers, I mean, this is before like Twitter was invented. Bloggers have those like guys in their underwear, just like trying to figure out how to turn a buck. Like what the hell's wrong with you? So it's either dumb or naive or it's prescient. It totally depends on your perspective. And, um, you know, you've got the last laugh. So God bless you. (laughs) It was 2012 or 2013, around the time that you started, I was running an ad agency and most of my creatives were New Yorkers. And when I say New Yorkers, I mean like either Brooklyn or Manhattan, but like the move from one island to another was about as far as I ever went. So for them, grocery shopping was the bodega. And I was trying to get them to walk a mile in a a CPG marketer's shoes. And that would mean going to a Walmart in Kansas. And that wasn't going to work. So I got them all on a school bus and took them all out to Jersey City where they have a- Jersey, I knew it. Well, you know, it's the closest we could go. So we went to a Walmart Supercenter, uh, a Target, and a 7-Eleven because I wanted to show them uh, convenience too. And we gave them assignments. We're like, you're the dad of two kids that have a birthday party this weekend and also have to get dinner on the table. You've got 30 bucks, go. And they seriously were like deer in headlights. They're like, (laughs) what the hell do you want me to do here? And I said, that's what I'm talking about. That's really walking a mile in your consumer shoes. And I said, take a look and see who's using a mobile phone. How are they shopping? Do they have a physical list? Like real hardcore ethnography. And that's 
that's how you learn. So yeah, maybe WebBand was ahead of its time. Just like I worked at a voiceover IP startup in 1996 when people were still using dial-up. What? <laughs> I was ahead of my time or I was really stupid because dial-up voiceover IP is really crappy. But I think it's just, you have to make a bet, right? And like, you know, luckily our, our bet panned out. There's a lot of bets that don't pan out. So it's as much luck as it is hard work that we just bet on something and it, and it kind of uh, came true. You know, one thing that you just said that, really resonated with me is um, really educating folks and kind of building a service that is apropos for folks that not only live in, in, in Brooklyn, but also that live in Kansas. And that's been a real evolution for us because, you know, when we first started, we were very heavily urban and very heavily bicoastal. But if you look at our demographics over time, that's been shifting. And then especially throughout COVID and probably even post-COVID, we're definitely seeing much more share of wallet or share of customers in suburban and rural areas. Even for us, you know, we're still adapting. Yeah, talk about right place, right time. So just to kind of follow up on that, voiceover IP was pretty crappy until broadband hit. This is a much bigger seismic shift. What has COVID done to your business? Needless to say, just the demand has been off the charts. And our B2C business, of course, a ton of growth since uh, March April, just basically unabated growth, especially in those early months uh, of COVID. B2B uh, has been more challenging. Obviously, you know, like uh, most folks who talk to these days are working from home, but I fully expect that to come back as soon as um, folks feel comfortable to go back into the office. But what's interesting is that now we have about almost six months of call it COVID era data on customer behavior. And what we're finding is that the customers that came in during COVID six months later are still the most active, stickiest uh, customers uh, in the history of Box. You know, early 2013 cohorts included, or even the early adopters. Are they sticking with the same brands or they're sticking with you as their source of purchasing? So definitely with us as a source of purchasing, we're seeing some shift in uh, brand loyalty, but query whether that is because of out of stocks uh, and scarcity versus true kind of brand allegiance shifts. So uh, I, I don't have any data to, to, to show one way or the other there. Sarah and I, both of our companies confirm what you just said. We're seeing consumers switch when inventory is not available. Yeah, yeah. Begs the question, how are you working with brand manufacturers when it comes to their supply chain? It's been challenging. So luckily, uh, us being a technology company and owning the entire fulfillment stack uh, from tap to ship. So, you know, of course, the app and the front end is built by us, but all the way down to inventory management, warehouse management, even the photo studio we run ourselves, even the physical robotics in our newest facilities are all built in-house. That capability has been really important during this time because we're able to onboard SKUs within an hour or two. So some brands would say, you know, we don't have the box pack or the bulk pack of wipes in stock or sanitizer in stock. We're like, time out, aka there's a pandemic going on. Show us what you want to send us. Uh, we'll pick it up. Even if it's in a current store, we'll go and buy it. We'll take a picture and we will onboard that SKU. And we'll know when it's going to hit our dock. So we know when to begin pre-selling it. Uh, because again, the inventory management system is all built by ourselves too. So being able to turn on a dime was really important. Wow. So you guys are going into other sources of retail and buying up that inventory. No, not not actively. But I'm saying that like, okay. if you're a Matt no, <laughs> Yeah. And, and satisfying 10 customers at a time, you know? Uh, no, definitely that, that scale does not work for us. Just hypothetically, like if you were a brand and said, oh, I'll get a sample out to you by next week. It's like, no, tell me the UPC and who carries it. I'll go buy it right now. 
and we'll have a picture up and running before the end of the day. Being able to be that responsive was really critical for us. With that in mind, we all are praying for a vaccine. Once it comes, what do you think happens to consumer behavior? Taking a step back at like February, March, when kind of we got asked the question of, well, this is, is this the one-time bump? I didn't know. I was like, well, we'll see what the data shows. You know, six months in, it's showing that it's not a a fleeting kind of um, a trend. My gut is that based upon the strength and the enduring strength we're seeing in those cohorts, these folks are here to stay. Like meaning that if COVID came and went within a month, they were like, you know, you could make the argument that, ah, you know, I I went went online for a few times to buy my Oreos and hand sanitizer, but uh, I'm going right back in the store. But these folks have been trained to come online for these products now for six months. Uh, assuming they had they had never done this before, at that mark, I don't know what the psychology says, but my gut would be it starts to form a habit, right? If you're doing something constantly for six months, that becomes the norm, and going in store might become the the abnormal behavior. So I would expect the folks who have stuck with us to continue to stick with us. Have you seen a diversity in demographic? Or are you finding that there are older people that are signing up, people who might not have been perceived as early adopters, socioeconomics? The demographics are shifting pretty quickly. Traditionally, 81% were between the ages of 25 to 44. That has definitely skewed upwards uh, in the most recent kind of uh, periods. And even anecdotally, customer service has been getting a different type of ticket. Like, how do I work the app? How do I shop? Do you accept the check? You know, those type of things that we're having to kind of deal with in real time because our demographics are shifting. Wow. Will you accept a check? My mind is blown. Yeah. <laughs> There's changes in consumer behavior right now. There's changes in the products that are people are buying. At an industry perspective, what we're also seeing is retailers making their media business a growing part of their offering. Just the other week, CVS announced CVS Media at people outside of your category like Macy's is also forming a media group. Amazon just came out with an attribution API. And with more opportunities for big brands to do marketing programs with retailers, how is Box now thinking about the media side of your business? And do you think it's going to be harder now that there's more options? Yeah, so probably starting about three to four years ago, actually, uh, we found a real avenue for brands to advertise on Box. So it's been a growing part of our PL, and now it's a very sizable part of our business. I think. It will continue to grow. Uh, yes, there's definitely competition, but that pie is so large that I think uh, brands are starting to find out, yes, I still need to do my TV commercials and that brand spend, but if I could cut out a decent sliver of it um, and get real ROI, real trackable ROI uh, at the point of purchase, I could balance the two. Meaning that when my CFO asked me what I got for my marketing budget in Q1, you can, as a marketer, you could say, well, of course we got this awareness which usually I'm, I'm guessing for the marketers on the, on the podcast today, listening to this, probably you, you might get your CFO rolling their eyes at you, but then you can follow it up and say, well, I also spent this in trackable ROI and this is how much awareness and sales I drove. Uh, and here's the data to prove it. So definitely I see it as a trend that's not going away anytime soon, even especially for us. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. As you think through revenue generation... There are a lot of different sources you can get it from, media being one. What are you guys thinking about as it relates to private label? Um, so private brand uh, has definitely been a, a core part of, of us growing up as well. It's had different purposes in different times uh, throughout our life cycle. So in the beginning, a private label was born about because some manufacturers just didn't sell to us. And so if there's a category that we need to be in, it's like, yeah, I mean, Elon Musk is, is sending trying to send people to Mars and landing kind of like rockets on a platform in the middle of the ocean. And I remember having this conversation with our team. It was like, I'm pretty sure we can make a cookie, you know, <laughs> literally, you know, or I'm pretty sure we can make that, you know, and sure enough, as you scour the landscape, um, there's a lot of technology behind it and the brands still have very high quality products, but private brand manufacturing has gotten to the point where there's oftentimes a national brand equivalent or national brand better product available as well. Again, in the beginning to fill in those gaps, but now it's to drive loyalty. And so we find our most loyal customers are very, very high repeaters in our Prince and Spring line. With that said, we don't do like the, the unfair kind of like prodding of customers. Like you're never going to see, oh, you added this to cart. It's like, well, you know, you could save two bucks. Yeah, that, you know, we treat our private brand team as a separate brand team. So they compete for share uh, of homepage, share of the ad platform, just like every other brand competes. So you never see us like just artificially pinning them together with the national brand. Yeah, because, you know, we obviously spend a lot of time talking to brand manufacturers. What's interesting from their position is they go, okay, retailer wants media dollars for me, so I can better my position at shelf. They give us little insight into the algorithms behind search, and then they're starting to eat at our market share with private label brands. So it's interesting to hear you say that that's, not the strategy at Box, and it's really to fill in the gaps of inventory and, and drive brand loyalty. Yeah, you know, and for us, I think um, being kind of the new folks into, um, into this world uh, seven years ago, we had to take a different approach. So what we heard was a, a lot of brands just being like, oh, I'm getting on a flight to XYZ retailer, and I am not looking forward to that because I just feel like a punching bag. And so our approach has been very collaborative in terms of developing the ad platform in conjunction with them developing our placements with them. And so collaborating has been kind of how we train our buyers versus seeing vendors coming in through the door, sitting them down across the table and just, just starting to, to beat them up. So mm. uh, I think that's why I like folks like working with us. So one of my favorite headlines during COVID is everything that's going on around the TikTok possible acquisition in the US. Microsoft and Walmart look like they might be teaming up to place a bid to buy TikTok. Why do you think Walmart wants to do this? And how do you think about acquisitions at Boxed? It's all about mindshare. I think getting a, the mindshare of a younger audience that is just starting their journey on being a, a consumer in America is a really important kind of a waypoint for any retailer. 
And so as kind of a typical audience begins to age out, trying to refresh that audience and gaining mindshare in the younger generation, I think is really important. Needless to say, also the advertising capabilities will definitely resonate with brands as well if they can close that conversion loop. Facebook was able to close that conversion loop pretty well. Of course, they can't attribute 100% of what item you bought, but they were able to show brands that advertise on Facebook and we can generate sales. And I'm guessing Walmart and Microsoft feel like they can do the same thing with TikTok. Totally agree. feel like this is a war over first-party data. <laughs> it is. Uh, I think it, it's, it's just a fascinating world that we live in. Is that like, just for you, simply what you said was crazy. It's like Microsoft and Walmart are, are trying to buy one of the biggest social media platforms in the world. Like even 12 months ago, Rachel, you'd, I'd be like, okay, time out. Like, let's pause this podcast. This has become the like crazy conspiracy theory podcast. What are you talking about? But no, it, it probably will happen. So it, it just, it's just a crazy world. Yeah. I just like, Jay, does this make you think of your M&A strategy differently? When you see moves like that? Definitely. So as we get bigger, M&A and going out and potentially acquiring other folks uh, has definitely become more and more uh, at the forefront of kind of how we think about the future. I'm not sure if we're, we're going to go out there hunting for the next social network, but certainly like thinking about folks that, that would be accretive to the things that we want to beef up internally. That conversation has definitely been had more and more since the early days. You can imagine when we first started, when we were in a garage, yeah. <laughs> you know, there really wasn't a lot of M&A talk. But these days, I think there's one more of it. Well, I think that kind of goes to the, when you start thinking about M&A, what's dumb and naive and what's prescient? So people might say any one of those three adjectives if they were talking about that TikTok story. Yeah. And so they may be saying the same thing about you from an M&A perspective. So as we think to the future, it could be dumb, naive, or prescient. Where do you see the space going? What do you think is the way e-com is going to look like a couple of years out. I'll probably say the most controversial thing that people would think I'm crazy now. I don't know if it's going to come true or not, but I could definitely see the world shaping up this way. And this podcast will forever memorialize this as a, a freezing cold take uh, or, or a, a hot take that came through or is, I think at some point in time, call it within the next 10 years, I could see Tesla trying to buy a retailer. Their vision is so out there in terms of, vertically integrating everything. And so started with cars, going into kind of autonomous fleets and their market cap, in order to justify it, they're going to be, they're going to need to just be more than a taxi and a, and a car company. And the way they're going to think about it is that, well, what are the biggest costs to online delivery of items? It's actually the delivery. And if we can crater our variable fulfillment costs through automation within the facilities that they're pretty good at and last mile delivery of just these autonomous cars driving around, that would be nuts. I think, you know, they could underprice everyone in the market for almost all goods if they did that. Well, you've got a really good point there. Although I am still waiting for my Tesla to sync with my satellite radio. And <laughs> that still hasn't happened. Let's get that to work person. <laughs> so like, I'm very happy with the Spotify integration and like all the other cool stuff that goes with it. But the fact that I can't listen to XM is just kind of ridiculous. So consumer first, Mars later. So I, I, but I think you do have a, a, the, the idea of things being upended or just a reimagination, whether that's the elimination of the showroom or other ways to think about the retail experience, I think is actually not so crazy after all. I know this isn't a stock trading podcast, but all these big companies are needing to do more and more extreme kind of things in order to justify their, their size. 
and their market cap. And, you know, Tesla owning, I don't know, some other smaller sub-segment of energy is not going to get them there. They've got to go after big swings um, to justify what I think will be a trillion dollar company. I totally agree with your hypothesis. And I also feel just in a short-term opportunity, Apple CarPlay right now is the most underutilized media channel. Oh, yeah. And the opportunity to infiltrate that from retail, I think, is huge. That's actually a really good point. I never thought of that, but I actually, I definitely take your point. I wonder what their end goal, if you're Apple, is with, with CarPlay, as well as even with the Android platforms. I don't think it's really been monetized other than probably subscription fees to the manufacturers, right? It hasn't at all. Yeah. Well, now that they're losing Fortnite and Android's going to become the, the, the uh, platform of choice for gamers, my son is thrilled that he picked the Pixel because <laughs> he's just not nearly as screwed as the rest of the folks. That's going to be so interesting how that fight shakes out because there's rabid Apple fans, but there's also rabid Fortnite players. So that's like a clash. So I have no idea how it's going to work out. A lot of rabid. I can't argue with either. Yeah, yeah, a lot of <laughs> So, Che, we're, we're coming up to our final question, our favorite question. Uh-oh, here we go. This podcast is called Brave Commerce for a Reason, and we want to know, what's the bravest thing that you've ever done? It can be personal or professional. Can I give one of each? Yeah. Bravest professional thing I ever, I've ever done has to be our stance uh, with regards to kind of how we treat our employees, the overall social mission of Box. It was really hard to just say, you know, we weren't profitable as a company at that time to say, you know what, we're going to pay for folks' life-changing events and kind of treat them even better than their peers are are being treated at other companies. And then also to then follow up with that to say, we're going to take the millions of dollars that we would otherwise make on uh, feminine care products and rebate that tax back to customers on our own dime and to further our losses at that time. I wouldn't suggest that to many CEOs out there uh, if, if, uh, if they don't have a very strong stomach for that because uh, getting in front of the board and kind of clicking to that slide is often not a harrowing event. So I'd have to say that was a tough time where kind of I think my resolve and all of our resolve here was tested. Luckily, it's all panned out well because the zeitgeist today is like, yeah, you've got different choices of where you want to shop. And folks are also voting with their wallet in a sense they want to spend money if they're going to be able to buy these products anyway where are they going to spend it so it's it's panned out personal things a little weird but uh, probably the bravest thing i ever did which i would never do again was when i was 20 something i went on this like southeast asian tour of like different remote beaches and islands and this guy you pay him in this like beat up speedboat take you to this like weird they're like atolls they're not even islands and you climb up and he he's like graduating you like Oh, here's a 10-foot one. Just jump off, cliff dive. And you're just like, oh, great. You know, Ooh, I'm like 22 at the time. Great. And then you end the day on one that's like 40 to 50 feet in the air with rocks right under. So you have to jump out instead of down because you go straight down. It's like not a great way to go. And you can't climb down because it's like this slippery cliff. And I just remember standing up there and just being like, now I know what my parents were thinking when they, when they told me, like, make good decisions in life because I didn't make one today. Uh, and so I just remember leaning back because you can't run, right? It's like this little, like, cliff thing. I lean back um, and then just start, jump out, jump out, jump out, jump out. Don't jump down. You jump out, world turns silent, and then you end up, I try to say as like, straight as possible, but you, you hit the water so hard that it feels like someone kicked you in the ass. And then you just try to swim up the surface because you, know, you plunge deep into the water you guys swim up. But I will say it might be apropos for this 
podcast to, to, to end it with this is that it's been a good corollary to my life in the sense that oftentimes people think, well, I'm going to change jobs or I'm going to, I'm going to start a new business. You know, what does that feel like? How did you deal with it? And I always think back to that moment, like, you know what, after, it was the scariest thing going up there and looking at the cliff. Once you jump, I sure as hell was not thinking, how do I climb back up? I was just thinking, I better land. I better stick to landing away. And just after I hit the water, I've got to swim to live. And that's the feeling you have once you have resolve on something and you take the plunge. Wow. Way to turn a very scary story into a metaphor for being an entrepreneur. <laughs> it's amazing. And I've actually been thinking about you all throughout COVID and your leadership. Uh, I feel like you were ahead of the curve in terms of how to really treat employees like people and design a company that's built for their lifestyle. And that's more important than ever in these times where work and life are melded together. Thank you, Rachel. Yeah. So, Che, thank you for spending time with us. And we look forward to hopefully eventually having you back on the show because I'm sure six months from now, crazy things will have gone down in retail and we'll want to pick your brain. Yeah. And parting uh, message, don't go cliff diving in Southeast Asia uh, unless you're 22 and you want a scary experience like that. So (laughs) that's the takeaway. My daughter is 21. So even if you're 22, don't do it. Text her right now, Sarah. (laughs) No, I'm sorry. I'm taking the passport. I'm good. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please leave us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify. And don't forget to share this link with a friend. Hi, I'm Jackie Cooper, Global Chief Brand Officer at Edelman and the host of Touch of Truth, a new podcast launching on the Adweek Podcast Network. My dad gave me this incredibly smart piece of advice, meet everyone once. As a result, I've met some of the most fascinating and inspiring people on the planet. Now on Touch of Truth, we're coming center stage and sharing the mic to experience stories of truth, insights and visions for the future that will challenge your way of thinking. Touch of Truth is available wherever you listen to podcasts. New episodes come out every Tuesday. I do hope to see you there.